All right, so, so as we dive into the topic of social justice, which, again, let's face it, it, it's explosive. You put the word social next to the word justice, you might as well throw Mentos in a soda can. It's highly combustible. I, I'm just curious, in a room full of church leaders, how many of you have seen some of these controversies in your own congregations? Yeah, pretty much every hand in the room is up. Um, you're not alone. These controversies are... Rocking corporations, I know Chick-fil-A, it's a big issue. I know at my university, Biola University, it's a big issue. And so my approach, just to lay my cards on the table, is instead of taking our cues from this cultural moment, instead of being chameleons where we just absorb the colors and our pigmentation of you know, deep blue or deep red, what if we started with scripture? <laughs> Imagine that, right? And so to do that, I'm going to read a few passages to kind of frame our time. But before I do, I need to make one disclaimer. Something that will derail this conversation before it even gets started. Something that will create rift after rift and endless strife in your congregations is something in the book I describe as the Newman effect. The Newman effect. And this comes from, it's not Seinfeld, it's not, hello, Newman uh, it's actually from a, from a 2018 uh, viral interview between the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, who many of you have heard of, uh, being interviewed by Channel 4's Kathy Newman. And they're hitting all the landmine questions, right? They're talking about um, transgenderism. They're talking about sexism. They're talking about the gender pay gap. They're talking about socialism and capitalism, all these hot-button topics. And what's hilarious about the interview is Peterson, you know, he's an academic and he's very nuanced. He makes a point. And Kathy Newman, this ended up becoming a, a famous meme that almost broke the internet. Uh, Kathy Newman would reply with the phrase, so you're saying. And then she would attempt to summarize his point in the most cartoonish, damnable, and inflammatory way possible. For example, so you're saying... Women just aren't smart enough to run these top companies? And he's like, no, that's not, not even in the ballpark of what I was saying. So you're saying transgender activists could lead to the genocide of millions. He'd be like, what? Are we in the same room? That's not even close to what I was saying. So you're saying we should rearrange our society to be just like lobsters? And poor Jordan Peterson just scratching his head like, what are you even talking about? And so it just became this, this meme all over the internet, so you're saying. And I argue in the book that we're all Kathy Newmans now. This, this is the new way we have discourse in our, in our culture. And social media just sort of throws a lot of fuel on that fire. Let me give some examples. I think we should wear masks. So you're saying you hate freedom? And you love totalitarianism and you want to bow to a tyrant and... Well, no, that's not really what I was saying. Let's try it the other way. I don't think we need masks. So you're saying you hate grandmas and want more of them to drop dead? N no, <laughs> not, not what I was saying. I think racism is still an issue. And as Christians, we need to, to speak into that. The legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and redlining and, and the GI Bill, all that stuff is still hurting communities of color, and as Christians, we should care. 
So you're saying, you're saying you're a critical race theorist? You're saying you're a cultural Marxist? You're saying a, you're a far left activist? No, <laughs> not really what I was saying. Or in the opposite direction, you know, I think maybe this or that isn't racism. I think in this case, maybe there's a better explanation than blaming everything on race. So you're saying you're basically the grand wizard of the KKK, you're an alt-right, you know, Breitbart reading. Um, you, you know, the, you get my point, right? These are the games we play in culture, and the church that should be against the flow, that should be countercultural here, is just playing right along with the same game. Let, let me just briefly, and then I'll, I'll take it to some specific passages, show that when we play, play with the Newman effects and, and assume the worst and, and project the worst motives onto people who disagree with us, we're breaking at least three biblical commandments every time we do that. When Jesus is asked by the lawyer, uh, what's the greatest commandment? You guys know the answer. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you guys like being misunderstood and having your viewpoint caricatured in the most damnable, cartoonish way possible? Nobody. When we play the Newman effects, we violate the second greatest commandment. We also violate one of the Ten Commandments. We're bearing false witness. Right? And we're also... Um, breaking the commands, not suggestions, the commands to not slander. Um, so I, I throw that out as just a disclaimer as we get into um, complex, controversial questions here. Um, we need to rise above, as Christians, the Newman effect that is not only ripping our culture apart, it's ripping many of our churches apart. So having said that, let's um, really start where we should when it comes to questions of justice. And that's with the scriptures. Let me just read a few passages for you. And the big headline here is that justice is not a divine suggestion. It's a divine command. You see this in the Old Testament. What does the Lord require of us, right? You guys know the verse, Micah 6, 8. Not what does the Lord suggest of us, or maybe if you have extra time, get around to it. What does the Lord require of us? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, do justice and righteousness deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed? Is not this the fast that I choose? This is God speaking here. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. So that's point number one, is justice is not a divine suggestion, it's a divine command. But scripture takes us farther. That doing justice actually brings a certain a brightness and a blessing into our lives. Then, this is from Isaiah, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily if you pour yourself out for the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Scripture goes even further. In the book of Jeremiah, we read that doing justice is equivalent to what it means to know God. The text reads, he judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well. Is not this what it means to know me, declares the Lord. You see that? Doing justice is equated with knowing the Lord. But the, the flip side of that coin is also true. 
that a failure to do justice actually can, can sever our connection with God and hinder our prayer lives. Um, you see this in Isaiah. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, God says, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. So cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. So again and again and again, seek justice is a clarion call of the inspired scriptures. Now there's a passage in, uh, it's in Jeremiah chapter 7, where it says, truly execute justice. Now think about that. Let's zoom in together on that word truly for a second. What that means, the presupposition, the premise of a passage like that is that there are untrue ways to execute justice. Truly execute justice means there's ways that sometimes maybe we think we're helping, we think we're doing what God commands, and we actually are unleashing more havoc. We're actually creating a little more hell on earth while self-righteously convinced we're doing justice. And so as we approach the controversial questions of social justice, I want to start and frame the conversation with a basic distinction that's going to run through the rest of our time together. On the one hand, we have what we might call social justice A. Basic definition of social justice A, think A for awesome. This is the good kind. This is what happens when we keep all those biblical commands that I just read. It's Christians living by the book and doing justice. I'll give a few examples of that in a moment. Social justice B, maybe think B for bad if it helps you remember. This is a lot of the stuff right now that is trending that bears the moniker of social justice, but there's an awful lot of it that's deeply out of sync with or incompatible with a biblical view of reality. And so we need to be able to draw some, some clear distinctions between social justice A and social justice B so that we can navigate these times with biblical faithfulness. So social justice A, let me give a few examples here. Let's uh, hop in a time machine together. Uh, let's hop in our DeLorean. Let's get our flux capacitors fluxing. Let's generate 1.21 gigawatts. Let's go 88 miles an hour and whoosh back to the first century. <coughs> Excuse me. In the first century, you had, in many major cities in the Roman Empire, literal human dumps where outside the gates of the city was a trash site where you could dump unwanted infants, unwanted babies, like garbage. And those unwanted tiny image bearers had a few names that society branded them with. Uh, one of them was the expositi, meaning the, the exposed, because they were exposed to the elements where more often than not uh, they would die. Oftentimes these little ones were brought into homes of slave owners and turned into lifelong sex slaves. It was profoundly unjust. When Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, and in the opening chapter, he has what is the longest run-on sentence in all of Scripture. It's 205 words in the original Greek before Paul just takes a breath and catches up with himself. You guys know the passage. It starts off with that famous line, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's called us holy and, there's this word, 
most English translations would say blameless. Some of the better translations would say unblemished. But it's this Greek word, amomos. Now, let me unpack that for a second. Those unwanted infants were branded either the expositi, the exposed, or momos. Momos meaning blemished, unwanted, dirty, unworthy of life. So Paul picks up on that to describe the gospel, and he says, look, lowercase f fathers may have kicked you aside and branded you momos, but praise be to the God and Father with a capital F, because he has called you amomos, unblemished, wanted, cherished, and Paul chases it with his next metaphor. You have been adopted into the family of God in Christ Jesus. And so you went from unwanted to wanted, a cherished son or daughter in the family of God. So there's some basic gospel truths 101 right there at the beginning of this 204-word sentence in Ephesians. So here's my question. What did our first century brothers and sisters do with that gospel truth? Did they just sit on their thumbs? No. That vertical truth that God has renamed us from momos to amomos, from unwanted to wanted, from outcast to sons and daughters propelled them horizontally to the literal human dumps around the Roman Empire to take society's momos and rename them amomos and bring them into their homes and around their dinner tables as cherished sons and daughters. And they did that to the extent that within two generations, our brothers and sisters in the first century had completely abolished and put an end to the human dump system in the Roman Empire. Isn't that inspiring? That's the kind of thing I mean when I talk about social justice, A. Notice that it wasn't in spite of the gospel that they went and did justice. It was precisely because of the gospel that they went out to society and brought justice. Let's give some other historical examples of of social justice, A, here. We could talk about uh, the abolitionist movements of the 18th and 19th century. Uh, In the United States, you have... Folks like Frederick Douglass, you have Harriet Tubman, you have Sojourner Truth and others who were looking at their Bibles and saying, wait a second, Genesis 2 says that we bear the Imago Dei. Everybody bears the Imago Dei. If we bear the image of an infinitely worthy God, then we have irreducible intrinsic value, dignity, and worth, and yet we're treating Certain human beings as property instead of image bearers? Not on my watch, they said. And so in the United States, you get Christians spearheading the abolitionist movement. Over in the UK, you get William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, who because they were reading their Bibles, because of good theology, not in spite of it, it propelled them to lead the abolitionist movement across the big pond. Now, it's not just that Christians spearheaded abolition in the U.S. and the U.K., Christians were the primary factor in the abolition of slavery in Brazil, in India, which had one of the biggest slave markets on the planet. There were more slaves in Brazil than all of, uh, of America in the 17th and 18th century. Uh, in uh, Africa, especially in South Africa, uh, over in China, which had a massive slave trade up in the Ottoman Empire, it was Christians who, because of their commitment to biblical truth, spearheaded the abolitionist movement around the globe. 
That's what I mean when I'm talking about social justice A. Fast forward to the 20th century, and you have in the 1930s uh, the rise of the Third Reich. You have the Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, gaining power. And there's a young Christian college student by the name of Sophie Scholl. Anybody heard of Sophie Scholl out there before? And her big brother Hans. They started a little underground, covert, subversive organization called the White Rose Society to expose Hitler for the, the hypocrite and the monster that he was. They ended up paying for it with their lives, for sticking to the claim that Jesus, not Hitler, is Lord, cost them their lives. You have the resistance movement of Bonhoeffer and others. Uh, examples, I could easily be here till midnight uh, giving examples of the church taking all those commands I just read seriously. And it is a beautiful thing when that happens. Now, I don't want you to hear me rewriting church history or doing revisionist history or writing some hagiography about the church has always been amazing. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. There have been several times, and there still are, that the church misses the boat on justice issues. Um, there's still plenty of work to be done. My point is not that the church has always had it right. My point is that there are beautiful chapters in church history that we can carry that legacy forward in our day of doing social justice A. Now let's take our time machine, let's take that DeLorean back to the present tense. Here we are. There was a study done by a secular research group called PRRI in the city of Philadelphia. They took a dozen faith communities and they were trying to gauge, they used a 54-point metric to gauge what kind of economic benefit do these congregations bring to their neighborhoods and communities. And what they found was that in a single year, in a 12-month cycle, just 12 faith communities generated $50.5 million in economic benefit for their surrounding communities and neighborhoods. That's pretty darn inspiring. That's the kind of thing I'm getting at with social justice. Hey, there was a Barna uh, study that came out two years ago that found that when it comes to giving your personal time to serve the poor, when it comes to leaving your comfort zone and maybe crossing an ocean to serve the poor, when it comes to giving personal resources, when it comes to putting your money where your mouth is and serving the poor, there's one demographic that outpaces all others by a long shot in the United States. And that demographic is, take a wild guess, Christians. You wouldn't know it from if you were living in the Amazon with no access to social media and somebody plucked you by the scruff of the neck, dropped you in the middle of Los Angeles, handed you a smartphone and a Twitter account, you would assume Christians are misanthropes, you don't give a rip about the poor, the facts show otherwise. Um, Christians to this day are on the forefront of things like adoption uh, and foster care and defending uh, the right to life for the most vulnerable and tiny image bearers among us. So all that to say, Hopefully you have a clear picture of social justice A. Now social justice B, <clears throat> I'm going to define this with a little help from my friends uh, and mentor, uh, the great living legend of the civil rights movement, John Perkins. Anybody out there heard of John Perkins before? Um, he, he's a big inspiration for me. Uh, he wrote the foreword to the book. Uh, 
we, we talk often, there's, there's a bit of a generation gap. He just celebrated his 92nd birthday. Um, and so part of that generation gap comes down to technology. So he'll FaceTime me, and I'll be talking to his neck scruff for like an hour. I'm like, John, just lift up the phone. And, um, but he's become a very dear friend. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with um, Dr. Perkins' backstory, so he's raised in Mississippi, uh, to a, a sharecropping family. His mom gets ill and when John's just a baby, and she couldn't get basic medical care because of the melanin in her skin cells. And so she dies when John's just a baby. Fast forward a little over 10 years, John's big brother comes back from World War II, decorated, purple heart, takes his little brother John out to the movie theater, um, big brother gets gunned down by a racist town marshal and dies in John's arm, arms when he's just a young teenager. So John says, I'm getting out of Mississippi. Goes out to Pasadena in California. Joins up with the civil rights movement. Gets arrested at a march. Gets thrown into a Pasadena jail where the officers proceed to uh, beat him within inches of his life. In uh, talking to him about this, you can still hear the emotion in his voice over 60 years later, like, it's, like it just happened yesterday. He says that they, they would take a fork and they would bend down the prongs on the outside so there's just two up and they would just jam it up his nose and down his throat until he's just basically vomiting blood. And then to add insult to injury, to be even more dehumanizing with it, they would make him mop up his own blood. Um, so that abuse ended up sending him to the hospital. And he says, you know, when it comes to injustice, we can talk about injustice in the abstract. John Perkins has experienced it firsthand. And he says the easiest thing in the world for him would have been to return hate with more hate. Let let me read directly um, because he says it better than I can. He says, would have been the easiest thing in the world for me to answer hate with hate, but God had another plan for my life, a redemptive plan. Jesus saved me. He saved me from my sin. He saved me from what easily could have become a life of hatred and resentment. He saved me by his amazing grace. And so for the last 60 plus years now, uh, he's been doing justice work. And one of the reasons I admire Dr. Perkins so much is that he hasn't budged on the gospel one inch in over a half century of justice work. And so as we seek to define social justice B, I'm going to give you, I, I asked John when he wrote the foreword, you know, as you're getting up there in years, what are four nuggets of insight that you would want to pass on to the next generation of biblically committed justice seekers. And I'm going to read the four, which is going to help us define social justice B, because social justice B is essentially the opposite of all four. So he says, first, number one, start with God. God is bigger than we can imagine. We have to align ourselves with his purpose, his will, his mission to let justice roll down and bring forgiveness and love to everyone on earth. The problem of injustice is a God-sized problem. So if we don't start with him first, whatever we're seeking, it ain't justice. Amen? 
Second nugget of insight from Brother John. Second, be one in Christ. Christian brothers and sisters, black, white, brown, rich, poor, we are family. We are one blood. We are adopted by the same Father. We're saved by the same Son. We're filled with the same Spirit. In John 17, Jesus prays for everyone who would believe in him, that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would be one. And that oneness is how the world will know who Jesus is. Listen to to Perkins on this. This is so relevant to the social justice controversies rocking the world right now. If we give a foothold to any kind of tribalism that could tear down that unity, then we ain't bringing God's justice. Amen? Third nugget of insight from Dr. Perkins. So number one, start with God. Number two, be one in Christ. Number three, preach the gospel. The gospel of Jesus' incarnation, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his triumph over sin and death is good news for everyone. It's multicultural good news. In the blood of Jesus, we're able to truly see ourselves as one race and one blood. Perkins says, we've got to stop playing the race game. Christ alone can break down the barriers of prejudice and hate that we all struggle with. There's no power greater than God's love expressed in Jesus. That's where we all find real human dignity. But if we replace the gospel with this or that man-made political agenda, then we ain't doing biblical justice. Fourth and finally, so start with God, be one in Christ, preach the gospel. Number four, teach the truth. Without truth, there can be no justice. And what is the ultimate standard of truth, asked Perkins? It's not our feelings. It's not popular opinion. It's not what presidents or politicians say. God's word is the standard of truth. If we're trying harder to align with the rising opinions of our day than with the Bible, then we ain't doing real justice. Amen? So those four points... just reverse all four and you have what I'm calling social justice B. Social justice B does not start with God. We'll get into this here in a minute. But social justice B erases what theologians call the creator-creature distinction. All good theology starts with the creator-creature distinction. The basic fact, God is God and we're not. Social justice B erases that, elevating the creature to creator status. So I, the autonomous self, I get to define the nature of reality. I get to define the nature of my own existence. I get to define the nature of my biology, the meaning of marriage. I am supreme. That is one of the foundations. If you read social justice B literature, if you read critical theory, whether it's coming through Michel Foucault, whether it's coming from Jacques Derrida, whether it's coming from Theodore Adorno, whether it's coming from Gramsci, whether it's the queer critical theory of Judith Butler, whether it's the critical race theory of Derrick Bell, they start from that premise that the human individual is the sovereign definer of reality. We're going to dive deeper into that in a minute. Uh, But it does not start with God. That's the first mark of social justice B. A second mark where Perkins says be one in Christ, social justice B divvies 
the human race into identity groups and then places them in these matrices of oppression or a hierarchy of oppression. And so it would say, you know, I'm like the devil incarnate because I'm white, I'm straight, I'm Protestant, and I'm male. Like that's just, I I check all the boxes. Um, And so it will train us, we'll go deeper into this, but one of the marks of social justice be thinking is its tendency to treat individuals as exemplars of their identity group. Individuals are just exemplars or ciphers or stand-ins or what Tom Sowell calls intertemporal abstractions of their identity group. And and so you see this with um, a lot of the, the CRT literature and a lot of the CRT curriculum, a lot of the diversity training out there in major corporations and even universities and even Christian universities trains people to look at somebody, assess their pigmentation, the melanin levels in their skin essentially, and then make determinations about whether they're the oppressor or the oppressed. It would train people to look at somebody and assess whether they're XX or XY chromosomes, whether they're female or male, and then assess whether they belong, they should be categorized in the oppressor group or the oppressed group, and so forth. And so so what it actually leads to, and we'll go deeper into this a little later, is racism is prejudice. So I'm prejudging somebody, pre-Jude. It's prejudice based off pigmentation. I'm making either favorable or unfavorable judgments based off your pigmentation, based off your race or ethnic identity. CRT encourages, under the banner of anti-racism, it actually encourages people to prejudge on the basis of pigmentation. That's what it does. There's clear studies that have come out on this. I encourage you guys, I cite all this in the book from a black sociologist, Musa Al-Garbi. He looks at all the diversity training out there and he looks at probably three dozen studies to show that under the banner of anti-racism, people come out of those seminars way more racist than, way they, than when they began. Why? Because it trains people, it rewires your brain to look at people and make prejudgments based off their pigmentation and lump them into identity groups. The Bible has a far more unifying way to approach race, as we'll see in a bit. So it inverts, um, social justice B inverts number one, start with God, it makes the individual God. It inverts oneness in Christ by divvying everybody into warring tribes. It inverts number three, preach the gospel. Because when you read social justice B literature, there is no category for internal sin. There's no category for the fall. There's no category for depravity. There's no need for forgiveness from from our creator. No, all sin can be pushed out there. It is all in the systems. Now, we'll talk about this a little further down the road. There is a category biblically for systemic sin, systemic injustice. We'll get there. But by projecting all evil onto the systems, the gospel becomes irrelevant. I don't need forgiveness if I'm not fallen. I just need to go and start a revolution. I just need to go and dismantle systems of oppression, the cis-heteropatriarchal oppressors, right? 
And so what I found, and, and I'll go deeper in about 10 minutes on this, is that you end up... Um, Christians with great intentions who get sucked into social justice B, it's not very long before one doctrine after another flies out the window until they've completely lost all zeal for evangelism and eventually they don't even believe the gospel. They see it as nothing but a white man's gospel. We'll talk about that in a bit. And fourth, uh, Perkins says, teach truth. Social Justice B says even the concept of truth and logic and reason and evidence and things like that are all part of white oppression. Truth is really found in, quote, the lived experiences of the oppressed. Um, so scripture is no longer the authority. Our fallen hearts become the final authority. So that's kind of to chart the course um, on those four points of social justice being how what the Bible offers is exponentially more beautiful and compelling. So, so that first point, start with God. How does um, social justice be invert that? Well, let me set it up like this. Uh, in the Williams home, I play a game with my four kids called Spot the Lie. And the way Spot the Lie works, you know, if they're watching the latest Disney cartoon or whatever it might be, if they can spot a lie and explain to me why it's false and why what the Bible says is better, they get a dollar. And I got to tell you, they're getting so good at it that I'm going to be living in a cardboard box before too long here. And so this is going back a few months. And my 11-year-old, uh, Holland is her name. We call her Dutchie for short. Uh, little Dutchie comes running down the stairs. Dad, Dad, uh, you owe me a dollar. All right, Dutch, what do you got? Well, she had been watching some commercial for the latest fairy, pixie, princess, rainbow, unicorn, whatever. And uh, she said, the commercial told me that I should follow my heart. I said, okay, go on. What's wrong with that? She said, Daddy, this was her exact, like verbatim. It's emblazoned in my memory. Um, she said, Daddy, I don't want to follow my own heart. My heart has fallen. I want to follow God's heart. And I was like, oh, I love you so much. Get over here. Like proud daddy moment. You just earned five bucks. You're not getting one dollar for that. You're getting five bucks for that. <clears throat> but man, what, what a countercultural thing to say. Right? I don't want to follow my heart. My heart's fallen. I want to follow God's heart. Social justice B is all about be true to yourself, hashtag, hashtag authenticity, hashtag um, follow your dreams, don't let anybody tell you what's right or wrong, be true to yourself. Let, let's analyze this together for one second. Uh, Charles Taylor, um, Canadian philosopher, he says that, you know, there's been an age of reason, um, there's been an age of science, it's been an age of faith. He says, what, what age are we living in now? And, and Taylor answers the age of authenticity. Um, and by authenticity, what he's describing is this idea that you have a moral duty to be true to yourself and follow your heart. Um, Robbie George out of Princeton has a similar insight when he says, you know, we've been through an age of science, an age of faith, an age of reason. Now we live in what Robbie George describes as the age of feeling. Where, where my feelings reign supreme. Those are sacred and unquestionable. 
So, so think through this with me, because it just blows my mind. I can't wrap my head around this. If authenticity means I'm true to myself, so if I feel something, I have a moral duty to follow my own heart, and anybody who questions me is my oppressor. If, if my feelings are so sacred, they're sacrosanct and authoritative and unquestionable, authenticity is the wrong word. A better word to describe, I'm going to follow my own heart and no one can question me, also starts with an A. It's called arrogance. If I believe I'm the final authority on reality, the better word for that is arrogance. Authenticity doesn't say, how dare you question me? I'm my own standard and authority. This is what authenticity sounds like. Daddy, I don't want to follow my heart. My heart's fallen. My heart's broken. My, my heart is tainted with sin and corruption and inverted desires and, and miscalculated affections. I, I need a heart reformation. I need the Holy Spirit to go to work and generate his fruit there. I need grace. I need redemption. That's what authenticity sounds like, amen? So think about this. One of the marks of social justice, B. I'm my own sacred authority and standard, and anybody who dare question me um, is my oppressor. Let, uh, let me frame it this way. So my 11-year-old, back when she was four, was watching a little Disney short called Small Potatoes. It's a little like five-minute cartoon of all these animated potatoes bouncing around. And I was working in my office a few feet away from the TV, typing away on some article that three people ever would read. And I'm listening sort of with one ear and tapping my finger as this song, these little punk rock potatoes start singing this anthem, we're all potatoes at heart. And it's super catchy and I'm kind of drumming on my keyboard and rocking out. When the song ends, it's the final shot of the show where they get the cutest potato of all in a little British accent to give the closing moral of the story and then the credits roll. And so the moral of this story, I actually looked up the script online. This is verbatim. There's no right or wrong way to do anything, children. Do what you want. And the credits roll. So the moral of the story was there's no moral to any story. Do whatever you feel like. And so I hear this and I you know, throw my laptop and I do a dive roll into the living room, turn the TV off and give my then four-year-old a 10-hour lecture on the Decalogue and the moral structure of reality. And she found it very entertaining. Um, but but I, I want to take that conversation back to the text of Scripture because I, I want you to see where this tenant of social justice be, where we can trace its true origin. And so let me sort of nerd out theologically to one phrase in Genesis 3 for a bit. The temptation from the serpent is you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's, that's the language. That's the translation. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And for years and years, I would scratch my head about that verse. Like, what does that mean? I would read commentaries and sort of the running interpretation was something like, well, Adam and Eve hadn't fallen yet. So they only had like a hypothetical or abstract understanding of of evil, and so if they ate the fruit, then they would experience it. They would have an experiential knowledge of good and evil, and that just never really resonated or seemed to be what the text was saying for me, because like God, well, God doesn't know 
evil experientially by committing it. Like, it just, it didn't measure up. Well, three years ago, I was researching for, for a different book, and um, I was reading uh, Abraham Kuyper, um, the great um, Dutch uh, neo-Calvinist, a little, not a little book, an 800-page tome called Common Grace. And he weighs in on that passage, and he says, look, the Hebrew word that's used here, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, that word knowing doesn't really have a great English equivalent. The closest thing is sort of like knowing maker, meaning I know something's the way it is because I made it that way. That's sort of, it's clumsy, but it's the closest you can get to the Hebrew word here. And maybe here's a, a simple illustration to get at it. After college, I moved in with some old high school friends. And one of those friends is, is a guy named Dave. And Dave plays bass for a band called Linkin Park. Any Linkin Park fans in the house? All right, as a professor, I have the legal authority to grant extra credit. So extra credit, extra credit, extra credit. And, uh, and so Dave would come back. We'd both, both get home from work around the same time every day. His work was a lot more glamorous. He'd come back from the studio, and I'd hop into his car, and he would play the day's tracks for me. And I would grill him with questions like, what effect are you using on the bass here to make it sound so huge? And, you know, whose idea was that key change? And all these questions. And I never once stumped him. Why? Because he knew the songs. He didn't know them because he studied them. He didn't know them because he listened to them over and over on repeat. He knew them because he made them that way. He had a, a maker's knowledge. That, that's not a perfect analogy, but it's as close as I can get you to that Hebrew word. You will be like God, knowing good and evil, is shorthand for you will be like God, knowing because you make, knowing because you get to define, knowing because you get to be sovereign over, knowing because you were the supreme maker of. Now move on to that next phrase, good and evil. For years I just read that as moral categories, you know, like right, wrong, good, evil, just, unjust. No, uh, reading some of the ancient rabbinic literature on this passage, I found that it was very common in ancient Judaism to use opposites to describe everything in between. So if we're ancient Jews and I say black and white, you would just understand that I'm referring to every color. If we're ancient Jews and I say the Beatles in Creed, you would just know I'm, I'm describing every band ever. <laughs> no offense to the Creed fans in the room. So good and evil is ancient Hebrew shorthand for all things. All things. So now fill in the blanks with that passage and see if the light bulb goes off for you. What is the serpent's temptation? You, Adam and Eve, creatures will be like the creator. You will be like God, knowing, being the sovereign, supreme definer of the meaning of everything. That's the original temptation. That's the original temptation, the lie of autonomy, the lie that the creature can be the creator. With, with that little, what, four-minute exegesis I did for you of, of Genesis 3, return to small potatoes and see if you hear what's going on. There's no right or wrong way to do anything, children. Do what you want. Right? Follow your hearts, right? It's the same serpent. 
who's been telling that lie for thousands of years, now it's just baked into our definition of social justice. That's the first major difference. It doesn't start with God. It elevates us to God's status. Now here, let me make a, a final closing point on this. Is you and I were never designed to create and sustain our own identity. That is a God-sized task. And so I want you to see advice like follow your heart and be true to yourself and don't let anybody question your truth. I want you to see just how utterly cruel that advice is because it is heaping a God-sized load, a creator-sized responsibility on the frail shoulders of a kid. And what happens is they buckle under the weight. Of course they do. Of course, anxiety, depression, I mean, they're complicated. There's lots of factors. There's multidimensional uh, analyses of that. But a major factor of the uptick, the steep uptick with anxiety and depression with Gen Z and below is they have been fed this Genesis 3 lie. You get to define your own identity. You get to create it and sustain it over time. We shouldn't be surprised that they buckle under the impossible weight. So where do we come in as Christians, as church leaders in this cultural moment? Our churches become places where people can recover from bearing the impossible weight of authoring their identities. Where we preach from the pulpit the good news, you don't have to create and sustain your own identity. You're a creature. The creator can do that. We, we tell the good news of an authored life the joy of having an authored life, of having somebody else define you and develop you and make your life part of a story that's bigger than yourself. So we need to be like triage and recovery centers for an entire generation that's being burned by this false social justice gospel of be true to yourself. That's point number one. Point number two, again, Perkins, be one, be one in Christ. Social Justice B comes around, let's divvy everybody into identity groups and pit them against each other in tribal warfare. Well, to get at this, I, I just want to share quickly um, two stories of how what the Bible offers here is far more compelling and far more helpful. <clears throat> I had a student a little over five years ago, he was, he was taking my freshman year class at Biola called Foundations of Christian Thought. It's an introduction to apologetics and Christian worldview. And this student, we're going to call him Walt. It's not his real name, and you'll find out why in a couple minutes. Um, Walt seemed, sitting in, in the lecture hall there, I couldn't really prove it to you, but he just seemed sort of like a Nazi. It's not like he would ask questions with his hand raised at a 45-degree angle, um, or anything like that. It's not like he had a swastika tattooed on his forearm or anything. He just sort of put out the vibe, the Nazi vibe. <laughs> um, well, I had Waltz the next semester for Theo 1, where we go through the attributes of God and Christology and the doctrine of humanity and all this stuff, doctrine of sin. And I noticed the shift taking place in him. Uh, he even started to look different. You know, it would, what an old King James Bible would describe as your countenance 
the, the exterior appearance of your soul's interior state, his, his countenance started to, to shift. Um, by his senior year, he took me for theology too, where we cover you know, pneumatology and soteriology and ecclesiology, eschatology, all that stuff. And by the time he graduated, he was just unrecognizable. There was a glow. There's a radiance about him. I noticed his life was marked by the fruit of the Spirit. There was just a love and a joy and a peace and a patience. And God, all that stuff just marked Walt. And he graduated and I sort of lost touch with him until I was working on this book and I was thinking, man, I would love to have him share his story if I'm right. And so I wrote what was easily the hardest email I've ever composed in my entire life. Hey, Walt, it's your old professor, Thad here. Hope you're well. It's been too long. Um, quick question. Uh, by any chance, your freshman year, when you took me for Foundations of Christian Thought, were you a Nazi? Uh, Follow-up question. Um, if so, then by any chance over your next couple years of Biola, did Jesus set you free from Nazism? With trembling finger, I hit send. Thinking, if I'm wrong, I am super wrong. Like, imagine getting an email from an old professor. Were you a Nazi? Uh, so, thank God, uh, Walt emails me back that day and says, that is 100%, that's my story. That's what, what God did over my, my time at Biola. So I said, tell me more. What, what happened? And he explained that there were three biblical truths that just sort of swung like wrecking balls through his neo-Nazi ideology, through his, his white supremacy. He said, number one was it was in, in theology classes just learning good old-fashioned biblical truth that he learned about the Imago Dei. If everybody bears the image of God, then how can he think he's better than somebody with more melanin in their skin cells? It doesn't add up. So the doctrine of the Imago Dei was the first wrecking ball through his white supremacy. The second thing, and this one was a little unexpected, but after he explained it, it made a lot of sense. The doctrine of sin puts us all on the same level. So, so think here of Paul's argument in Romans 1 and 2 that crescendos in chapter 3, right? He's saying, look, Jews, you have the law and you break it. You need grace, you need redemption, you need a savior. Hey, and you think you're better than Gentiles because you have the law? Well, great, you have it, but you, you know it and you blow it, so you're super accountable, you need grace. But hey, Gentiles, you aren't off the hook. God wrote his law on your heart, and you break that. So enough of these ethnic superiority games. <laughs> Jews and non-Jews, the argument crescendos in chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? All, that all was a wrecking ball through Walt's white supremacy. He realized he couldn't blame all sin and, and scapegoat people with more melanin as the source of all evil. That all included him and every other white person and every person on every color under the sun. The third and final nail in the coffin of his Nazism was the gospel. 
If all have sinned, then we all equally need grace. And if we're saved not by our performance, not by which lever we pull in a ballot box, um, not by our political affiliation, not by our heritage, not by our ethnic identity, not by melanin or XX or XY chromosome, none of that. If we're saved by the grace of God alone, then that gives a new foundation for an every tongue, tribe, and nation family that emerges because of the good news. And so um, Waltz, in quotes, uh, asked me to call him Waltz Sobchak um, for the book, for the purposes of the book. Um, that's John Goods- Goodman's character in The Big Lebowski, a little fun fact. Um, because if I used his real name, he said that some of his old um, neo-Nazi friends would literally come after him and he wouldn't last very long. By the way, he's not the only co-author who ended up having to change their nom de plume for similar reasons. Um, so, so there's one story from the far right how just good old-fashioned theology can set people free from really, really bad ideas. Let me just briefly share um, from the opposite side of the political spectrum um, a buddy of mine, Edwin Ramirez. He shares his story in the book. He's a pastor now up in New York. And Edwin started reading Social Justice B, particularly in the form of the father of black liberation theology. Have you guys ever heard of James Cone before? Name rings a bell for many of you. Um, Reading a lot of James Cone's work trained Edwin to do what I was just describing, where you prejudge people on the basis of their pigmentation, right? And then you categorize everybody just by looking at them. You know everything you need to know, whether they're oppressed or the oppressor and things like that. So the deeper he, he went down that rabbit hole, um, Edwin said that it got to the point where going to church um, became a drag because he realized he was surrounded by his oppressors. And even worship uh, became a chore where at a certain point he would just fold his arms and stand in the back of the room with a scowl on his face thinking, you guys don't get it, how oppressed I am and, and you're all my oppressors. He said it almost split his marriage um, because he married a a white woman. Um, He said he lost several friendships. And one day, that all changed when uh, he and his family were visiting a a predominantly white church in in the rural south. And he saw one of his favorite hymns came on and he noticed, for some reason, his eyes locked on this sweet elderly white woman in the front row who was belting out this hymn just with her, her palms stretched out to the sky with every, everything she had, every fiber of her being, just singing it out to Jesus. And Ramirez, Edwin says, as his eyes locked on her and he could see her worshiping God, all at once, like a flash, it hit him. That's my sister. We have been adopted by the same Father, redeemed by the same Son, we're inhabited by the same Holy Spirit, we're family. That's my sister. And he said at that moment, 
um, just all these Bible verses began to marquee through his mind, like Galatians, in Christ there's neither male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. Ephesians, um, Christ has demolished the dividing wall. Uh, all these passages, uh, may they be one, Father, as you and I are one, John 17. Uh, and so he walked out of there liberated from liberation theology, essentially. Uh, and has been on a, a mission ever since to help other people, it, the way he would put it, is help other people wake up from wokeness. Um, because he sees how much, if you racialize everything all the time, that becomes a real threat to true biblical unity. Now listen, when I say true biblical unity, I don't mean being in Christ wipes out or erases um, the unique ways God made us, right? If you read the book of Revelation, God's every tongue, tribe, and nation vision for redemption, those forms of diversity actually last over into the new heavens and the new earth as something beautiful. So, so you hear what I'm saying? Once our in Christ identity is foundational, that's, that's what ties us together and makes us brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean all of a sudden we become this amorphous blob. Um, no, there's still diversity, but instead of diversity now becoming a point of contention or tribal warfare, it becomes something beautiful under the Lordship of Christ. So that's the second thing that um, Social Justice B loves to divvy people into these identity groups. Uh, a third point, again, Perkins says we got to keep the gospel first. Keep the main thing the main thing. Now, let me zoom in on this here, that one of the phrases that has become really sort of cliche in the last couple of years, I'm curious if you guys have heard it before, the phrase um, social justice or justice is, quote, a gospel issue. Have you guys heard the gospel issue language? That's, that's very common. Sometimes I hear um, racial reconciliation is, quote, the heart of the gospel. Um, this kind of language is, is trending, we, we might say. <clears throat> now, I want us to think through this together. And to do that, let me set the stage uh, with a little help from um, C.S. Lewis, good old Clive Staples to the rescue. He wrote a little essay called uh, First and Second Things. And it's in a series of essays, a book called, uh, I think, The Weight of Glory. And in it, he makes this observation that rings true of so much of life. Lewis says, if we make a second thing a first thing, we will not only lose the first thing, we will lose the second thing too. If you make the first thing the first thing, you will often get the second and third and fourth thing sort of thrown in as a bonus, which... Sounds abstract, but, but let me illustrate. Um, if you go to a party and make it your first thing, your, your number one priority for everybody there to like you and validate you, you'll become unlikable and obnoxious. If you um, make not being anxious your very first thing, so the time you wake up in the morning is, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, you're going to become pretty anxious because you're preoccupied with it the entire day. A church, let's bring it a little closer to home, a, ch a church that makes being relevant its first thing will become supremely irrelevant. Why? 
Because relevance, being anxiety-free, and getting everybody to like you are not first things. They're not goals. They're byproducts of other things. So, so if instead of going to the party, everybody needs to like me, you went to the party with a different priority, I, I want to be genuinely interested in people, you would actually become likable without even trying to be. If instead of trying to not be anxious, you decided, hey, I'm going to go for a run or I'm going to go on a hike and look at some of the beautiful stuff God made or I'm going to you know, tickle my kids and have an elbow drop wrestling match with my son or whatever it might be, you would end up less anxious without even trying to be. If your church focused on the first thing, how do we revere God and teach his word and proclaim his gospel, if that's the first thing, your church will never be irrelevant. You will become relevant without even trying because the first thing is the first thing, right? So, so let's apply Lewis's insight to the question of social justice. When a church makes social justice its first thing, it not only loses the real first thing, the gospel, it loses the second thing too. Social justice becomes something completely unrecognizable from anything taught in scripture. You tracking with me? When a church makes something other than the gospel its first thing, it makes social justice the first thing, it loses the gospel and it loses social justice. But the good news is the flip side of that coin, when the gospel is the first thing, then justice follows as the second thing and it'll be the beautiful biblical kind. So, so let, let's take the conversation to scripture. Um, hey, real quick, do I have till 5.15? Is that my drop dead time? Cool, thank you. Um, so 1 Corinthians 15, it's, it's quite possibly the oldest creed on record uh, from the early church. We know that because if you read it in Greek, it's very clumsy Greek. It doesn't flow at all. Um, but if you turn into Aramaic, which would have been earlier, it, it's smooth as butter. Um, scholars consider this and the Carmen Christian Philippians 2, probably the two oldest um, creeds on record from the early church. And you guys are familiar with it. Paul sets it up by saying, I passed on to you what was of first importance, and protois in Greek. This is priority numero uno. The, we don't have to speculate. The Bible, Paul under the inspiration is telling us, this is the first thing. I passed on to you what was of first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose from the grave on the third day, he didn't rise as a ghost or a hologram or an inspirational idea. He rose bodily so that he, he could appear and people could eat fish breakfast with him. So, so perfect life, substitutionary death, bodily resurrection so sinners like us can be saved by grace. That's been the first thing for 2,000 years. right? The minute we let social justice, the minute we say social justice is part of the gospel or even the heart of the gospel, or quote, a gospel issue, is the minute we're making the same mistake the Judaizers made in the first century. We're saying the gospel is the finished cross work and empty tomb of Jesus plus, you know, the Judaizers plus Jewish dietary restrictions and getting circumcised. Paul says the minute you make a Jesus plus anything, you've lost the best news in the universe. The minute we make the gospel the finished work of Jesus plus all your efforts to combat racism or human trafficking or sexism or fill in the blank is the minute we have the very kind of different gospel 
that Paul condemned in such strong terms in his letter to the Philippians and the Galatians. And so let me draw out the point like this. There's a distinction between an indicative and an imperative statement, right? So an indicative statement just indicates something that's true of the world. An imperative is a command, a suggestion, or not a suggestion, a command about what should be true of the world. Um, the gospel is an indicative. It's an announcement. It's, it's announcing what King Jesus has accomplished through his perfect life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection so sinners like us can be saved. It's an announcement. So... If I equate the gospel with all those verses I opened up with, do justice, truly execute justice, seek justice, then I've reduced the indicative of the gospel to an imperative. And the minute the gospel becomes an imperative is the minute we've lost the best news in the universe. So, so if I say, let's, let's say I'm feeding my family dinner, and I tell the kids, eat your broccoli, that's not indicative, that's an imperative. And it's not good news, particularly from their perspective, right? An indicative would be, your broccoli's been eaten, right? That's good news. Mom bought ice cream, that's good news. Um, and so we need to be very careful, because a lot of this sloppy language is being thrown around these days in, in evangelical circles, where justice is a gospel issue. It's not. The gospel is the same gospel it's been for 2,000 years. The declaration, the indicative of what King Jesus accomplished to save us. In, in the same way that um, tell the truth isn't a gospel issue. It's an imperative. It's a divine command. It's something we should do as Christians. It doesn't mean it's the gospel. Be faithful to your spouse is not the gospel. It's not a gospel issue. It's a divine command that we should obey because God commands it, especially if we've been saved by the gospel. So we need that crystal clear distinction because otherwise what we end up in is, is we effectively turn, and I've seen this happen in real life in ministry and with my students, the minute we conflate social justice with the gospel is the minute that people begin to buckle under the impossible weight of always trying to be good enough. But let me, let me say it like this. Um, the Jew at the, the Wailing Wall, the Hindu plunging into the, the Ganges River, the, the Muslim facing Mecca five times a day, the, the Catholic in the confessional booth, what are, what are they seeking? Justification, catharsis, what the Bible describes as not guilty sentence, Everybody wants to be a very good person. Everybody wants to be on the, quote, right side of history. We all want justification. It's not just a Christian thing. Here's my point. If you don't get that soul-deep, God-built-into-you need for justification satisfied, the only place it truly can be, in Christ, that need doesn't magically disappear. It just gets redirected elsewhere. And so if my need for justification, if my need for the not guilty sentence isn't satisfied in the gospel, then I'm going to resort to hashtagging the right things and virtue signaling the right things and blacking out my Facebook profile or rainbowing my Facebook, all these things to prove, see, I'm a good person, right? I'm not like all those, you know, right wingers out there. Or I'm not like all those 
you know, alt-right people. I'm not one of those white supremacists. I'm not one of those sexists. I'm not one of those patriarchal oppressors. See, I'm not, what? I'm a good person. See? It's a false gospel, folks. It's a false gospel. Why? Because it gives people the illusion of righteousness apart from Christ. That's a false gospel. A lot more can be said. Uh, I do want to get to some Q&A, but I just want to hit the last point that Perkins makes. Um, tell the truth. So, so one of the marks of social justice B, again, Scripture's not the truth. My lived experience, if I'm a member of an oppressed group, that's the final authority. And again, going back to a point I made 20 minutes ago, it, it trains people to assess the truth or falsehood of a statement, not on whether it has evidence, um, but based on the melanin and XX or XY chromosomes of the person speaking it. That's happening in diversity trainings in major corporations around the country and schools, again, including Christian schools. Now, here's the problem with that. You can take everything I've said tonight, you can take every word of this book, every argument of this book, and pull all those words out of my mouth and put them in the mouth of, I don't know, a Vadi Bokum, um, a Tom Sowell, a Shelby Steele, um, a Monique Dusan, a Suresh Budapreethi, an Edwin Ramirez. The, the list could go on and on. People from different ethnic groups and who aren't dudes. Would, those, would any point I'm making magically become true just because it's in the mouth of a person with a different melanin level? No. The point is, ideas don't have melanin. Arguments don't have XX or XY chromosomes. So social justice be by training us to evaluate ideas based on whoever the messenger of the idea is, makes us actual sexists because we're prejudging based on somebody's gender. It makes us actual racists because we're prejudging on the basis of people's skin tone. Now, just a second final point, and I'm getting sick of the sound of my own voice and would way rather interact with you, but I want to make this point briefly when it comes to the truth. So as I was saying in Social Justice B, your lived experience becomes the final standard of truth. Now, let me talk neuroscience for like two minutes. Neuroscientists say that there's a trio of brain regions, your anterior congulae, your amygdala. There's, there's this trio of brain regions that psycho psychologists and neuroscientists describe as the uh-oh center of your brain. It's the part that lights up like a Christmas tree when you're afraid. And when that happens, when the uh-oh center ignites, the frontal region known as the assessment center that can keep your uh-oh center in check, it, it goes dark. And so let's take an example of a little boy. We'll call him Johnny. And, and Johnny has an experience when he's a little boy of, you know, maybe he has a run-in with a tarantula that terrifies him or maybe even gets bit by a black widow and has to go to the hospital or something. And it's really traumatic. If Johnny goes and sees a good psychiatrist, that good psychiatrist is going to do their best to, to sort of coin a term here, to ungeneralize little Johnny's fear. In other words, to say, you had this specific traumatic encounter, Johnny, 
But let's not generalize that to the whole world where every spider's out to get you and anybody who questions that is probably a spider themselves. Let, let's not play that game. If you find a daddy long legs, <coughs> your lived experience of that is going to be terror. That daddy long legs is out to get me. But your lived experience doesn't match reality. Daddy long legs are harmless. And so that good psychiatrist might take little Johnny through Something like exposure therapy. Here's a picture of, you know, a tarantula, and here's a tarantula in a terrarium. Can you touch the glass, Johnny? And, and eventually, little Johnny can even be petting a tarantula and be fine. What has the psychiatrist done here is ungeneralized little Johnny's trauma so that the world doesn't feel bigger and scarier than it, ex than it actually is. Social justice B, by making our lived experiences the final authority that are sacred and unquestionable, does the exact opposite of what a good psychologist would do. It generalizes your fear, generalizes your trauma. You had this experience? Well, read these articles, listen to these activists, read this book, check out that blog. The entire world is against you. The... the Veggie Tales is racist because some of the vegetables have color and turn out to be villains. Um, don't you realize that, that milk itself is racist? I'm not making this up. That's an actual um, entire book about how milk is um, rooted in white supremacy. Um, if everything is racist, so it convinces people that they're nails. And if I'm a nail, then everything looks like a hammer, right? That's mean, that's mean to convince somebody who's had a genuine experience with racism that therefore everything's racist all the time. I see the effect this has on students. I have students who will take some sociology class who convinces them everything's white supremacist and they go from being filled with the fruit of the spirit to chronically triggered, fearful, rage-filled, assuming the worst of everything, living on edge, fear center of their brain lit up like Times Square. It's mean. We need to do the work of good psychologists here and have honest, hard conversations thinking through these issues and not playing into ideologies that convince people the whole world is spiders all the time. Why? Let's get biblical. Because the Bible commands us to fear not over and over and over, over a hundred times in the inspired text. Now, I'm not saying racism isn't real by any stretch. I'm saying racism is real, but the extent to which we turn everything into racism or sexism or fill in the blank all the time is the extent to which we overlook the real problems because we exhaust everybody chasing down microaggressions.